Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm giving you uh, a program that provides you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. And uh, we have podcasts, and those podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, other locations you folks are reposting. We are on YouTube. You can watch these programs on YouTube, and uh, we hope you'll do so. And subscribe. Uh, as of this broadcast, uh, and I say this just because that's the number, we have a whole 19 subscribers right now. That doesn't mean we don't have more people listening. Uh, we have over 32,500 listens on Spotify uh, after three, uh, three years and three or four months. I don't know what those numbers really mean, but hey, I'm glad that folks are listening to the program. And um, we also encourage you to participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, where uh, we want you to spend time going within. Uh, listen to that still, small voice. Find that quiet, peaceful space to recharge and regenerate and re-energize your soul so that you are ready to take on the tasks that are ahead of you in the material world, as it were. And speaking of the material world, if uh, what we bring to you resonates and you'd like to support us financially, we do have a PayPal and Patreon account. We are also setting up Ven uh, Venmo, V-E-N-M-O, uh, so that if you want to contribute that way, you can. Uh, we'll let you know when that happens. And if you like it, we'll take any amount. We're greatly appreciative of those folks who have helped and who will help. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is a special edition of Tell Me Your Story, and uh, I am very happy as the host, Richard Dugan, to bring this to you because I think you're really going to enjoy this. One of my guests, and rarely do I have more than one guest in a program, but in this case, I made a huge exception because... It's a brother and sister. Now, the sister, Maria Espinosa, was on this program. And, Maria, I want to thank you for joining us here on Tell Me Your Story. Uh, give us a quick synopsis. We had you on talking primarily about your latest book. Suburban Souls, which I hope you will look at and read and buy on Amazon. Yes, it's about a family of Holocaust survivors living in the 1970s in the San Francisco Bay Area. A very conflicted family, especially the youngest child, the youngest girl, girl mm -hmm. and who goes off to a commune. I'll let it, you read it from there. And if they want to know more about you, they can go to the interview that's on SoundCloud or YouTube where we had our wonderful conversation. Our other guest is her brother. Now, she is in New Mexico, Albuquerque to be more specific. He, Lee Kronbach is in the Philippines. What city are you in? And thank you for joining us all the way from the Philippines, way across the big pond. You're welcome, Richard. Yeah, around 7,000 miles away, 11.30 at night here, where it's 8.30 in the morning where you are. And uh, I just want to say I love Suburban Souls. I've read a lot of my sister's books. Um, some of them I, I was proofreading for her when she did her first draft. Mm. I read Herbert Souls Life in a Lot, the first draft, and it's gotten even better. And as somebody knows her sister, I hope she doesn't mind my saying that it's a, in some ways an autobiographical book. 
in mm-hmm. some ways she was part of that family and it certainly captures the whole spirit of early middle 1970s bay area i mean it really hits it on the nail it's a fine book yeah well you yourself are a fine musician and we are going to be featuring uh, uh, um, uh, some of your music throughout this program on this special edition uh that i i'm really looking forward to our listeners hearing and I'm going to have you, as we as we uh, enter <clears throat> and exit each of the segments, I'm going to have you give us a real brief synopsis of the song that we are going to be listening to uh, and so forth, uh, maybe a, a bit of the origins uh, w- where that came from. But you have been a musician for uh, quite a number of years. I mean, uh, it sounds that you were you were performing. When I was still in high school, or maybe even before that, I, I graduated in 78, so um, uh, you, you've been performing a lot longer than that. Uh, tell us a little bit about your musical uh, journey, shall we say. My musical journey. Okay, well, I'll be trying to be fast here. Um, I have to say, like, it's, it started with my elder brother, who... Uh, was very hip. He was a football player. And at the time, before he went to a private school, back around 10 years old, 12 years old, you know, he was a football player in the elementary and junior high. And uh, as a hip football player, he had a lot of hip black friends and other hip friends. Uh, he used to dress like the classic Norman Mailer hipster, mm. the early 50s, the way he looks. And I would follow him around. I was sort of, I was autistic. I still sort of am, but I was very autistic up until the age of around 25. So I had- Autistic? No, you weren't autistic. I certainly was. I have a burger. Don't argue with your brother. <laughs> I had it up, I believe I did. She was seven years older than us and away in college. Didn't know what was going on down there. Um, but, uh, so what I do is I hang on my brother, who was not autistic and quite popular, to his great annoyance. You know, I feel like having a younger brother hanging on to your coattails. But he would uh, lead me. The first thing he led me into was to, uh, well, my mother would make a cake. She was a great chef. Wonderful, delicious vanilla icing. And um, if we helped her wash the dishes, we got to... In the kitchen, we got to lick the bowl, which we mm. had to eat on the icing. Oh, and the yeah. radio was on, and it was on to the New York's first and only, at the time, R&B station, WLIB, W Liberty. And so we heard of this whole R&B. And then when we got home from school a little earlier, they were playing the gospel train on that same station. And I loved it. Now, what happened after that is that uh, a few years later, I went to another school, a private school, and I met a very devout conservative Jewish girl, young woman, older than me, very hip, very sophisticated, always well-dressed. She's now a professor of Hebrew at Oxford University in England and well-married. But she took pity on this lonely Absperger's uh, Jewish kid whose parents didn't want to be Jewish. And she gave me like books of Hebrew and uh, a book in particular by Martin Buber about these rabbis who were almost like hippies, except they didn't do drugs or sex, but otherwise they're exactly like Allen Ginsberg. Mm. And um, matter of fact, 
Um, anyway, so one day I was reading a book she gave me about these rabbis. Well, my brother was blasting out the gospel music, and I said, wow, one-on-one makes God. <laughs> I, I became a believer in God instantly. Hmm. And after that, I started, um, um, I got very much into Charles Mingus because there's a period in my middle to late teens when I was completely isolated. Maria was in college. My parents were sort of leaving me alone totally. I was autistic. And none of the neighborhood kids wanted to talk with me because I was a revolutionary. My parents were left wing. They voted for Adlai Stevenson and worse things, you know. Um, so what I had to listen to was Mingus had a, Charles Mingus had a record called Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting. And that song, you know, that sound, I listened to it over and over and over again. Maria and her book, uh, Longings has a beautiful description of me, lonely, drinking some beer, maybe grabbing a little marijuana back when I could get some, and dancing around to these jazz tunes to save my soul. Well, um, so that's how we got into black music. Mm -hmm. Then, later on, let's move ahead, I went to Berkeley, and I was, I'd stopped, uh, I didn't know any real classical piano, I had a few lessons as a kid, but I was playing free stuff, just where you just play whatever you want, you know, it's bang. And of course, it was, was the 1964, the very height of flower power, before things started turning sour, when everything was sweet. And um, 1963, 1964. And um, I put an ad in a local paper for musicians, and I got this drummer. My first, my life was, was laid out in a series of great drummers. I love drummers, especially conga drummers. Mm. This guy, EJ, he played congas for all the famous people when they came to the Web Bay area, Jackie Wilson, the Chai Lights, whoever, he would be the Congo driver. So he answered my ad because he said, I wanted to see what the hippies are doing over there in Berkeley. He was from Oakland. And then he said, well, you know what we should do? We should call this band you're putting together. It's like half Berkeley and half Oakland. It's free, but it's funky. So we'll call it Cosmic for Berkeley and Pimps for Oakland. <laughs> <laughs> really? The cosmic pimps. And so we put an ad in the paper and we got this most amazing assortment of people who were very different. There was a cellist from Reno who was a Mormon, who a businessman also came up in a three-piece suit and played the cello, took the, had just the vest, you know, took the suit off and the vest on. Mm -hmm. And then we, had him, then we had EJ on the drums, a marvelous drummer, one of the, my first great drummers. I was playing my free piano. I had a guy named Joel Freeman, real nice guy, who played flamenco and Spanish guitar. And these two teenagers who were, one was white, one was black. I'm not quite sure if they were gay or not. They were certainly very close friends. They each had a giant afro around a foot high, one black, one white, or blonde. And uh, they'd wear these uh, overalls and be barefoot. And then there was a... Uh, trombone player from a university who was in transcendental meditation. And so you had piano, flamenco guitar, conga drums, two flutes and a trombone, and a few other horns every now and then. And it was an absolutely wonderful sound, but it's gone completely. It's not on my YouTube site. But mm -hmm. that was my first great drummer, EJ. Mm -hmm. My second 
Baker. I was a totally different band. I was hanging around. I got into a country rock psychedelic band <laughs> called Chambray. Those tapes also have died, unfortunately. Tapes and CDs have a short lifespan. You want to make music to live forever? Put it on the internet. I remember those bands. I remember those days because I was living in Berkeley at the same time. Yes. And I was also pretty much of a hippie. Well, let's uh, let's take a break here. I want to go into one of these pieces that we have uh, have put together here, and give me just a, like a sixty second little synopsis, if you can, of this song that we're going to listen to as we go out. It's called "I'm So Glad." Okay, I, I've always loved religious music, though I played it as hippie style. But starting around when I moved to Seattle, a uh, woman I was teaching rock to, a great classical organist, said, Lee, you're a perfect church player, and don't worry about being Jewish. It doesn't matter. And then uh, I said, fine, okay. So I started playing in church, and I just loved it. And I was playing in this Seattle church, which was dying because of lack of interest. And I, I got to say, I put it together. They still have a, a plaque for me. And uh, so to thank me for putting it together, they, I love to have a big lot of everything going at once, you know, like the collective improvisation of Mingus ending where everybody's playing in different keys, but it all fits, you know. Mm -hmm. Praise the Lord. And that's what this is about. They, uh, they thanked me after what I'd done by giving me the money to hire a couple of musicians to play along. This great uh, Seattle drummer, whose name I suddenly forget, but he's the foundation along with a guitarist Brad Buck, who sort of also applied bass sound. Mm. I was playing piano. The piano was very much over, uh, it's a little too loud. That's those recording engineers always think the person who's paying wants to hear himself the most. But <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but then you could barely hear the, the choir going in the background, and then everybody else in the, in the congregation, other 80 people and their friends all sort of saying different things. So it was all going at once. It was all for the Lord, and it sounded sweet. And so for me, it's a very favorite moment in my music life. We're going to go out with I'm So Glad, and you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. We're talking with Lee Kronbach and his sister, his elder sister, I listened to my elder sister, uh, Lee, uh, more times than I'd care to admit sometimes, but I'm so thankful that she is always there for me. We're going to talk a little bit about that as well as we continue talking with Maria Espinosa and uh, Lee Kronbach uh, on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan. Stay tuned.
Thank you very much.
Welcome back to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, and we came back in with a piece of music that uh, Lee has provided us, and it's called Dark Plum. First of all, thank the t- I thank the two of you for joining us, and tell me real briefly, what uh, what is this piece, Dark Plum, uh, w- what are its origins and so forth? Oh, can I say that? Yes, please. Can I please. say something about that? Okay. I had written a novel called Dark Plums about a prostitute in Manhattan in the 50s. Now, this is not my story. I put my emotions into it, but it's totally imaginary. And Lee wrote this wonderful piece, this jazz piece to accompany it. It was uh, under option for a movie, but because of all complications, the movie never got made, but the music remains. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make the music, I did recorded it in Seattle. My my all time closest drummer friend, Mel Wiggins. I actually paid to fly him up to help. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> hey, we have had all kinds of animals on this program, so no worries. Just keep right on a rolling. Uskaya's a fighting nun. She kills rats and mice ferociously, but she will not have any sex. And this very overcompensated male tries to jump on her and he gets back and so now the dog is sold thank you dog anyway Bob Angelin I at the time you know I'm Jewish and my lover Rodel Valdoz I've known him since 87 and he's a doctor still keeping me alive thank God through could have Parkinson's I wouldn't be I'd be dead without him mm. many times um He's Jewish, I and mean, he's Filipino, and I'm Jewish. Now, Bob Angelin, who plays the saxophone and helped produce and write and everything, he's Filipino, and his wife is Jewish. His wife um, plays flute, and his wife's mother is still alive, and every Friday she makes the Jewish bread. They have nine children. Can you believe it? He's supporting nine children wow. on a musician's income. That's something else. And the nine children will show up with some of their friends and their girlfriends and boyfriends and some other people they invited. And uh, this 90-year-old grandmother is making the Jewish challah bread. I bring my dog along and he loves it. You know, every, all the dog kids will play with him and then he eats some of the bread. Anyway, so that's a story of dark plums. I, I wrote it when I was inspired thinking about Maria and just what it was. She knew New York in the 50s. I knew New York in the 50s, the jazz scene. She had a little affair with one jazz guy that I sort of, uh, he was cheating on her. And I was supposed to tell her, and I forgot not to come for the meeting that day. (laughs) And so she walked right in on him. And so she thanked me very much for that, of course. Anyway, but that's the whole story of Dark Plums and Bob Angelin. I don't remember at all. That's <laughs> totally fictional memory, as far as I can tell. <laughs> I remembered it vividly because I was both. Really? Yes. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. The two of you can, the, the two of you can write your memoirs, and then you can compare notes. And then you can come out with a single version, and that will be the family, uh, the family story of sorts. But the solid B is Mel Wiggins, my favorite drummer. Uh, Bob Angelin, we talked about, is on the saxophone. Mm-hmm. A friend of his, Brad Boyce, is playing bass. Who he used to be a real idiot, pain in the neck, and then he became a devout Buddhist, and and a, just a super bass player. It's like 
Mingus reincarnated mm. and me on piano. And that's it. Well, so four. I would like to talk a little bit, have the two of you talk a little bit about uh, your um, the dynamic uh, that exists uh, between the two of you in in this context, uh, because it sounds a, an awful lot like she inspires you, Lee. Uh, and yeah. so I want I'd like for you to talk a little bit about uh, the ways in which she, your elder sister, uh inspires you to continue to create. I mean, you just talked about uh, Dark Plum, and obviously that was inspired by the, the work that she's doing. Um, what about that down through the years as the two of you have grown, you've grown up and you've grown older, uh, and it sounds to me like you've gotten, ah, great stuff. You, uh, <clears throat> you have matured in that regard. I'm sure the relationship as well. Tell us a little bit about how that uh, how that has how that has helped you out through the years. Okay, well, starters, this is hard to see, but it's in my Angel Blue CD, which you can order from the Philippines by mail order. Mm -hmm. And the picture shows my sister in the middle reading from a book, and me and my brother, the two little boys on each side, listening. When we were growing up, my sister used to tell the most fantastic ghost stories. I mean. It's good, better than anything on Netflix. Wonderful stuff. Um, and, and I always liked her, and she always supported my music, much more than I did. She thought I was a great musician back when I thought I was a barely competent beginner in 1962. 61, actually. She always supported my music. And then uh, I felt in return, I'd help her out by occasionally, I was the first I read the first draft of a couple of her novels. Did I not, Maria? Huh? You remember that? This, I remember a suburban, yeah, yeah, and you've been a good reader. You've been very supportive with my own writing, a lot, really supportive. So, so, so we both supported each other yeah. very, very much. Uh, we've always been very tight, you know, and she's she's always overpraised me, and I've tried to over, I've sort of, well, I, I won't say overpraised her, I'll say I've praised her. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think overpraised. I think we were both very more alike in temperament. And my my mother, my brother Michael, who's in the middle of us, was really the stable one. In the end, he's kind of kept us all together financially. At one point, we would have all been disinherited by my father in his old age. And my brother Michael is the one who came in, had hired a lawyer, and had the intelligence, the common sense, the know-how to keep us inherited somehow. Mm -hmm. Anyway, thanks to him, we're surviving financially. And what, yeah, may I ask? I have yeah. And also growing up, Lee and Michael were really close together because they were much closer in age. And by the time you were in high school, I was way off at college. Yeah. So let me ask you, if I may, uh, about your brother, Michael, the, the middle child. Um, what what was what is his uh, uh, what does he do? I mean, is he a musician? Is he a writer, or is he gone in a different direction altogether? But he used to work for the San Francisco bus service, mm -hmm. the RTD, and he most famous thing he did was one time there was a huge deluge of rainstorm in San Francisco, and he ordered all the people on the staff to go driving around to all the bus stops where they had all those little uh, paper schedules. Oh, yeah. the bus schedules. 
I put a little plastic cover each of them so they wouldn't be hurt by the rain. Oh, wow. <laughs> Amazing. And that was his story about it. I mean, he, his wife was a librarian at San Francisco Library, and they both kept their jobs for like for 25, 30 years. They bought the house in San Francisco in 1970. So you can imagine between the government pensions, the value of the house, they're doing quite good now. But they've always helped us out. They're still helping us out. My son, who is a, and living in Siberia, Erzkutsk, well, the wonderful wife he married two years ago, this wonderful woman, so happy to have her as a mother, uh, daughter-in-law. She's a philosopher of semiotics, and she plays the church bells on Sunday. Really wild. That's on my YouTube site. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. We're going to take another break here. We're going to hear another song here, and I'm going to hopefully pronounce this correctly, Mahal. Tell us a little, very briefly, about this song as we go out. Mahal is based to Rodel Baldos, my partner since 87, the guy who's got me alive. He's also the one who photographed it. Um, that's my favorite band in Seattle. I finally got together Harvey Leonard on trumpet and um, Chris Pat Christopher Patton, my brother from another mother, on drums. I wish I'd met him years ago. I like, But you'll see the interaction depending on how much of it you play. This is Tell Me Your Story. Lee uh, Kronbach and uh, Maria Espinosa are joining us here on the program today, and we're so grateful that they are. I think this is a fascinating conversation we're having. And we'll be back with more Tell Me Your Story, new paradigms for a new world in just a few moments.
Welcome back to Tell Me Your Story. The music that you are hearing is from Lee uh, Kronbach, and uh, the piece that uh, we just heard coming back in to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, is Wawako. I believe that's correct. Wawako, yes. Tell me about that piece of music. And I have to tell you that this brings back for me memories of my early days in broadcasting when I would uh, be working for a, uh, uh, and I've told this story probably more times than most people would care to hear, uh, but I worked for a Christian radio station, but it was very diverse, and that's the way I looked at it. My boss referred to it as balanced Bible teaching. That's impossible. Uh, but I produced... Uh, music programs, Black Gospel, uh, Pentecostal, Southern Baptist. We got churches coming in, uh, uh, live church services on Sundays where you had the most incredible uh, musical performances that you could hear uh, during a church service in many of these, uh, the black churches back in Phoenix. And every time I hear this music, it just warms my heart. So tell us about this piece. Well, Uncle, yes, I guess all my music has some of that gospel in it. Mm -hmm. well, in this case, I met Mel Wiggins, my main drummer, for most of my life. Matter of fact, from 1976 to 1991, I lived in L.A. We co-wrote everything I wrote. And if you look on my YouTube music site, which we'll hope we'll give them the address there at yes. some point. Um, Look on there, you'll see of the 53 tunes up there, 30, Mel is either co-composer or he's played on it. And you can see him by his face. He's a friendly-looking black guy wearing a vest and then later on a hat. Um, so me and Mel and Lee Garner, a flute player, who was a feminist lesbian and also super religious, and she led, still does lead choirs and plays flute today, so that was our trio, drop, conga drums, piano, and flute. And we were smoking. We were great. i got to say that. Then we added a second conga drummer, Van Gray, an older guy. Um, oh, no, this is for Wabon Cope. For that one, we ran into this drummer named One-Armed Joe Liggins. He lost an arm, run over by the railroad train. Ooh. His father, Joe Liggins Sr., wrote, the Honey Tripper, considered by many the first rock and roll record. And um, so one arm Joe showed us this rhythm he called Wawanko. Of course, it's the, with the classic Latin basic rhythm spelled G-U-A-N-G-U-A-N-C-O. But we didn't, we weren't writing it down. We just had it orally. So it sounded like he said Wawanko, so we wrote Wawanko. The music itself, the rest of the musicians, we're all from the Cal State Los Angeles Jazz Band, which was, I gotta say at the time, I discovered that all the music colleges, departments in Southern California, you have this incredible race war. You have white people whose bigotry is like pre-World War II. You know, they integrate the music department by hiring an Italian every so often. And then on the other side of the fence, uh, and the uh, people who teach jazz or rock, it's, everything is all black supremacy and negritude. And the, the more melanin in your system you have, the better you are as a human being. I mean, it's like each was like a parody. And there's two books, Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amos, Paradise, Paradise the Classical White tra Tradition, and then The History Man by Malcolm Bradbury, 
criticizes the new radical left position. Mm -hmm. And I lived them both. It was driving me nuts. So anyway, in Wawanko, I said, okay, I'm going to take all these guys and record them myself with my money at this cheap studio. All the people in the jazz band who were either black or part of, there was the black group and the white group. You know, so the black group was the black group, and then a Hawaiian guy playing tuba and a white guy on trombone was like with me. And then we had Lee Garner on flute and a woman named Janet Planet playing rhythm guitar throughout the whole thing. Uh, that's Wawan Co. Mm. Great stuff. We're going to hear more uh, of the music that you uh, the, you've provided for us for this program here in a little bit. I want to continue talking about your the relationship that the two of you have. I'm curious, Maria, if uh, if Lee has ever been the uh, inspiration for uh, some of your some of your own writing, some of the stories that you tell. And again, we'd we'd speak more in terms of fictional rather than biographical. <laughs> yeah. Well. I, all my biographical stuff at this point comes out as fiction or as poetry, <clears throat> although I do have a memoir in progress. But yeah, he figures in stories from my work as somebody who's very close to me, who's influenced me a lot in my life. So he appears. Mm -hmm. And I must say, he's always been encouraging about the writing and really supported it. Other than that, I think those ghost stories, he's always urged me to write ghost stories and more oh, fantastic sure. fiction, which yeah. I would like to, but somehow the other stuff gets in the way that I have to write first. Well, those ghost stories, I have a feeling, will be coming along sometime soon. So uh, just uh, hang loose, uh, Lee. You'll get to read those, too. You'll get to see those in print one of these days. We're going to take another break here. Uh, we're going to listen to more of this wonderful music as we go in and out of these segments. But I wanted to uh, uh, I want to touch on a subject that I don't know how sensitive this is, so I will address it very delicately when we come back here on Tell Me Your Story. The piece of music, Lee, we're going out with is called Morocco. Very briefly, what is this one about? Oh, this relates to the same political fight I had in Cal State where I was forbidden to write a composition for my master's thesis because it was in four parts, and one part was in a disco style, which is the part we're going to hear. I called it Morocco because back around the Ninth century in Morocco, Jews, Christians, and Arabs didn't fight, but got together and shared their beliefs and knowledge of the Lord. And so this is a dedication to that spirit. Mm. And um, actually was compilated later. Um, okay, so I was basically expelled from the master's degree program to write music. But I said, okay, I'll take the disco part. We'll play that. That became one of our most popular pieces. We played Shaky's Pizza for one year, with like a record. And after one performance of Morocco, a whole bunch of Moroccans invited me to their table and said, young man, you have caught the spirit of our country. Thank you. Wow. And don't call it Morocco. Call it Fez. Because Fez, Fez the, the city, which is the spirit of the heart of Morocco, which you have caught. And, you know, we had a great time at that Shaky's. I got to say, it was just wonderful. My and um, so here's Morocco. No, Wawa, Morocco, Morocco, right? Morocco. And those are recorded live on KPFK FM, which is why you get a great sound and 
200 people in the audience clapping and cheering. And this was with Van Cray, Mel, me, and Flute, and Lee Garner Flute. And my understanding is they say there's this, there's this old saying about Shakey's. If you've played at Shakey's, you've played everywhere. And this is Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan along with Lee Kronbach and, uh, and Maria Espinosa. And we will continue here on Tell Me Your Story in just a couple of moments. Picture yourself in Morocco. Shut your eyes and take a deep breath. Morocco.
Welcome back to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, this special edition as we continue our conversations with uh, Maria Espinosa and her younger brother, Lee Kronbach. And I want to thank the two of you for joining us. We came back with uh, another piece of music here, uh, Lee. Uh, it's, it's another one of these location pieces called Bethesda. Uh, and I'm, am I correct that we're talking, is this referring to Bethesda, Bethesda Maryland? Okay, Bethesda is uh, originally a, a place in the New Testament where Jesus Ah, killed. yes, okay. And uh, Bethesda Church is the church I played in Seattle. It's the place where they thanked me by giving me the money to hire the people for I'm So Glad. I played church piano there from 1999 until I left for the Philippines in 2012. And... Um, I worked with a, a trumpet player named Jeff Molitor, who and his brother, a real hip, smart guy, was the one who drove our pets to the airport so that we were able to sh take them to the Philippines without them being killed. And um, he's on the trumpet. Uh, Lee, Judy Rasmussen is playing the flute, and she's not well-trained on the flute, but she had wonderful melodic ideas. I loved her melodic ideas, her variations, the things she would do. And then there's uh, the drummer is the same drummer as I'm so glad. I keep forgetting his name. Um, well, anyway, um, I hired him. He, were, he didn't really like my style, but he was an excellent drummer, and he liked the money. Uh, <laughs> you know. And I liked the fact he was an excellent drummer. So I hadn't met Christopher Patton yet, if I had. Anyway, so he's there. And then we got a saxophone player. There was a whole series of great sax players came out of Garfield High School, but they'd stopped, and he was the first player after the other. He wasn't very good at all. And then we had Brad Buck on guitar, and he was great. Oh, no, that wasn't Brad Buck. Excuse me, no. I'm thinking of the other song. But that's the gospel. Sax player is one of the last great players from Garfield High. Ben White, another Jewish guy. I loved the way he played sax. It was full of soul. And so we had him. We had the hired drummer. We had uh, Judy, a flute, and the other guy on trumpet, uh, Jeff Molitor on trumpet, and uh, me playing piano. And to get a double great bass effect, the recording engineer double recorded my left hand so like it's twice as strong, which made it act like a bass. Mm. And uh, it's, a, it's a, the whole long piece is like a suite, which follows this pattern that first you're depressed, feeling sad, then suddenly you get this revelation, oh, the Lord, oh, how love you, and then it's, it's like the trumpet blares that out, and then you feel great, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm cool, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm good. And this is when the sax player does this real sort of strutting off solo stuff, and then you kind of realize, wait a minute, I'm not all that great, actually, the same old creep I always was. That's what it goes down. And and then this realization is hit with well, a drum solo, you know, which I do with some little thing. And then the piano comes in, followed by the sax solo, and that is like the resolution. Okay, I'm only a human being. I'm not that great, but I'm not that bad either. And I'm just going to keep on believing that the Lord will somehow help me to be a better person, and I'm going to keep enjoying it. And, and then it goes out. It's mm. probably the best piece I ever wrote. And for that one, I was in Seattle. So Mel's in L.A., right? 
I could not write without Mel Wiggins. I paid his airfare back and forth to come up and write, help me write that one song. Or actually two songs. Mm. There was another one. I want to, if I may, I would like to uh, talk about something that um, uh, every so often I like to get into these areas, and I do this with the, the utmost respect for you, for your family, uh, and and for everybody listening as well. But I want to ask you, um, because you you and I've heard this time and time again, uh, where people will be introducing someone, and they will make reference to their sexual preference or maybe mm-hmm. they're 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 in transition or so forth and i'm curious first of all when did you come out when did uh, when did you let let's say maria know that you were gay well maria found out by herself before i ever told her she always kept an eye on me and she knew everything i was doing this she wrote a book, by the way, called Longings. Mm-hmm. And while I feel the description of me at the ending is a little over-exaggerating, she's <laughs> saying how I went into being fully gay and fully Jewish. That all sort of happened in 1980, and she has to be doing it in 1960 to attack my mother, you know, but which is exaggerated. But, but the rest of me that's in that book is just right on, you know. So you want to know who I was then, read Longings. But as far as being gay, and it's part of your personality, I think you might as well say it, you know, mm-hmm. a program like this, you know, I mean, like I said, 1987, I married Rodel Baldos, and that was on the advice of a rabbi. Check this out. This is a great story. Really? Wow. This is really fast. I have like 10 great stories. If I ever can go back on again, I'll give you the rest. The Duke Ellington story, the... The Mad Chase through by by Black Pimps to the Biker Rally uh, story. Um, the two uh, professors were practicing magic against each other, and I was in the middle. It was a lot of great, interesting stories. But anyway, here's one. What was I talking about? about what? What was I saying? Something Talk- gay, something. You're talking basically about when you came out, and you said that Maria already knew. So, Maria, I'm curious, when you discovered that your brother was gay, what was your first reaction? Uh, I think interest, curiosity. For one thing, I don't remember the scene where I looked at you and said you were gay or thought you were gay. I don't remember that particularly very much. I do remember you telling me about being gay. I remember being in the maternity ward where I had just given birth to my daughter in Paris and my parents came and visited me and told me about this scandalous behavior you had been engaging in. Um, You've been addressing poems or songs to somebody named Josie, but it was really a guy named Joe. And following in your sister's footsteps, you got expelled from high school. I got expelled from college. Long story, another novel. Okay. okay. So, but then I began realizing, you know, why did you become gay? And I realized that from a young age, you said you <coughs> fantasized about guys. <coughs> I also looked at our father's fathering or what was not there in his fathering. And I could see a lot of circumstances. Mm-hmm. I could see what's there in my mother. I could see a lot in the family dynamics that might propel you toward being gay. But then something I'll always remember is when you sat across from me in a restaurant in Berkeley and you said, you know, I'm really gay. I really like guys. 
And at that point, a kind of cute looking woman passed behind me. And I saw you looking at this woman with great interest. Yeah, really gay. <laughs> it was so funny. Well, that's true. I have a, I have a bisexual streak. I, I am attracted to certain types of really attractive women. <laughs> and you got married to Carol. That's and you were very in love with Carol. But we had a great time the first two years. But I got to tell you the story of how I met Rodell, Dr. Rodell Valdo, who saved my life. 1987, I was in Los Angeles, and AIDS was really going, and I was consulting once a week with a very liberal reform rabbi named, uh, I forgot his name. He was a cripple from polio. He's, he'd have to go around with the two canes, you know. And so he said, Lee, I'm really worried about you, you know, this agent stuff. And, and you don't really have a good partner right now. He was a nice guy, but he, we have no common interests other than sex. So he said, Lee, looking in my eyes very hard, you know, he says, Lee, you have to find someone who's really going to make you happy. You have to do that. And like, I went, oh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he laid this incredible guru vibe on me. So that Friday night, which have to be Memorial Day. I went out there, I said, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to look at these gay bars, and I find, I'll find a gay bar where this rabbi would say these people are acting in a good way. First gay bar I go to, everybody's very pretentious, trying to look, I'm more beautiful than everybody else here. Mm -hmm. like, okay, rabbi, I have no use for this place. Go to the next one. Next one. Everybody's getting fiercely drunk and slobbering. I said, okay, you know, forget this one. So then we went to the third one called Moogie's. It was a place where a lot of Asians and people, white guys who liked Asians, called rice queens, like to hang out. I noticed all these people are laughing. The first thing I saw, somebody was falling off a bar stool, and these two people were helping him back up. I said, okay, here's the rabbi's place. I'm going to stand against the wall and just wait. And in less than a minute, in 30 seconds, Rodell was standing right in front of me, and he was gorgeous back then. He had this long black hair. I mean, people, he was... He was, he could have been a movie star. Mm. And uh, he stopped right in front of me and he says, hi. I said, hi. I said, wow, would you like to go home with me? He said, deliriously. I said, oh, what a great word, great <laughs> word. And that was yeah. it. So we went home. And then we had this wonderful sex. I think the thing is, I, I totally forgot it. I totally forgot it. I just knew when I wake up, I'd had the most wonderful sleeping experience of my life. And then uh, I asked him to marry me right then and there. I discovered we both liked hiking. We both liked animals. We both liked movies. We both liked music. He liked classical. I liked jazz. We taught each other. I loved his Brahms, and he loved my Mingus. And, you know, and it's been a great uh, year ever since. Yeah. We haven't been, the most we've been separated the whole time. He moved to Seattle before I did for eight months. And then after that, there was maybe four weeks we were separated out of 32 years. You know, I, I remember um, growing up uh, in this industry uh, at the Christian station back in the 80s and early 90s, obviously at the beginning of the, the AIDS uh, uh, epidemic. And the, the, the criticism, the, just the utter uncompassionate attitude uh, that, that, that oozed, shall we say, out of the speakers uh, and I thought, wait a minute, I thought the church was for the quote-unquote sinners, okay, mm -hmm. of which you would be uh, uh, cast into that, that group. 
uh, that's the place where you belong. And yet there were some churches that wouldn't allow people who they knew were gay into the church. It's like, you have to be kidding me, really? That, that, that's, that's bizarre. Um, but one of the other things, too, was I kept hearing this whole thing about, well, that's a choice. They're just making a choice. They weren't born this way. And I'm going, I was bullied as a kid because of my legal blindness. I didn't choose it. It chose me, shall we say. Who is going to choose a lifestyle that's going to be bringing onto them that kind of uh, uh, harassment? I mean, you think about today and the Internet and trolls and all that stuff. Uh, you didn't. This was not a choice of yours, was it? This was. This is just who you are. You know, when I, the first sexual feeling I ever had was a dream, which was that I was in a spaceship with this nice, handsome, muscular guy dressed up in those comic book, you know, those super tights they all used to wear. Oh yeah, short, a lot of leg <laughs> when they got down, and, you know. And that was it. That was my first orgasm when I was around eight years old. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. But I'm really glad that the rabbi told me, didn't turn me away, but told me to find a good partner. Because without Rodell, I would have been dead four times by now. Yeah. Well, you know, I've had interviews with rabbis, and we've even discussed the law in Leviticus uh, regarding men laying with men and women with women. And he says, do you know the context in which that law was created? I said, no, I, I, I don't. I mean, all I know is how it's been used to beat people up. And he says, mm -hmm. the context, as he described it, was that you, uh, they, they instituted this so that you would not interfere with the natural procreative process of the species, of man. Well, here we are in the 21st century, fast approaching 8 billion people, and I put this question to you and everybody else. Do you really think that we've interfered with the procreative process of man? <laughs> fast approaching 8 billion people? Well, I don't think that, so. <laughs> when that book was written, you know, there was very few number of people. There was like maybe less than 10 million human beings over the entire globe. Yeah. You know? so, so we needed it. So maybe what the thing is we need to realize is that every so often the Holy Scriptures need to be revised. You know, times change, and as they do... It's like my, my pills. Doc Valdez has to change the pattern every two weeks because mm -hmm. things change. Things change with us. Well, sure. you, you you have committed the ultimate blasphemy, my friend, and I welcome you to the group to the uh, to the club. You're not alone. <laughs> but what we are going to do is take another quick break here. We're going to take a break and listen to another piece of music, and again another one of these pronunciation deals here. Sedun Sisters is the piece we're going to listen to if I've pronounced it correctly, and tell us a little bit about that as we go out. These are my two, well, almost my two last students before the virus came down. Their mother, they're half Irish, half and Filipino. Their mother was divorced, and she was very Catholic, and she homeschooled them. Now, back in Seattle, I taught around five or ten, or tried to teach five or ten homeschooled Christian kids, and they were just stupid, lazy, terrible, bad manners, and, and just the worst students I'd ever had. So I a little shuddered when she said, I'm homeschooling. But then it turns out these two girls were, like, really hardworking and really smart and totally unafraid to say, no, Lee, I don't really want to play any chess. I want Broadway, and the other one, I want Phantom of the Opera, you know, and uh, they just were very firm about exactly what they want. They worked their tails off, and in the space of a year and a half, 
that covered what would be the normal program of graded piano teaching from sixth grade until college, until college, you know, sixth grade till, till graduating from high school. They covered like six to seven years of program in a year and a half. Mm. That's how good they were. And I'm so, they picked out this really tough um, Filipino piece from uh, a folk song, along with uh, They Loved My Favorite Things. And they played them both, and Doc Baldos recorded them. And you can see some of the Filipinos in the background, our local color, and our dogs. So, here's a dog. Ah, yes. Oh, hello there, buddy boy. Well, I should have done that. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to listen to the Sedan Sisters, and we're going to be coming back here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, along with Lee Kronbach and his elder sister. Uh, Let me rephrase that, his older sister, uh, but she doesn't look that old to me. Uh, And her name is Maria Espinosa. She's an author. He's a musician. And we will be back here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And we'll be right back. This is an evening. 
And it's one evening, and they're playing one evening. Ain't that amazing? Okay. Sharon Bangi. <laughs>
that, so I asked each of the girls to write their own arrangement of A Christmas Carol. And this is Anne's arrangement of Hark the Herald Angels Sing.
Welcome back to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you for staying with us as we continue our conversation with Lee Kronbach and Maria Espinosa, who is the author of uh, some very interesting works that I think you should check out. And we came back in with the final piece, and I'll have you describe this as well as we continue our conversation here with Lee uh, Kronbach, as well as his sister, Maria Espinosa. And uh, there is an interview that I did with Maria on her book. Uh, and we hope that you will uh, check that out on her website, MariaEspinosa.com. And also go to YouTube to find out more about Lee Kronbach. Lee Kronbach Music is what you kind of want to put in the search engine on YouTube. And you will find all kinds of great pieces of music, including what you have been listening to here on the program. Tell us about Amen. 
Amen. That's the last thing I ever wrote. Um, I came down with Parkinson's disease, which makes you sort of weak and flubby and so on. And then Dr. Valdos, thank God I have a 24-7 doctor, uh, started figuring out, you know, the pills to give me and everything. But I couldn't drive anymore. It's too dangerous. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I was, we were driving home from a little grocery store. And suddenly this idea for Amen came into my head. And I knew if I didn't play it immediately, I would forget it. Now, we have a wonderful house helper. The world that we're in Filipino is Ale Lai, uh, Jun Mark Esteban, JM, who happens to be an expert techie on internet, computer, all that stuff. And uh, the reason he's working for us is because uh, the Philippine tech companies pay their, pay their people so badly that us, by paying him a lot, are outpaying what he can get in those companies. So what he did, he recorded me playing it just live. I didn't rehearse or anything. I just sat down, played it, and he said, uh, please uh, record it for me. And then he edited it, and he put it on my site. Amen. And it's one of the most popular pieces up there. It's based, it turns out there was a, uh, Rodell found this uh, black uh, gospel jazz player who played interesting trio um himself on piano and two white guys from Eastern Europe, one playing cello and one playing bass. Yeah. Cello, bass, and gospel piano. Uh, let's give out your your website address, Maria, so that people can uh, check out uh, uh, your wonderful writings. Okay, Maria Espinosa, spelled exactly like my name, mariaespinosa.com. Okay, and Very Lee... And Lee, how do we get a hold of you? What what website do you want them to go to? I'm looking that up right now. I keep forgetting the uh, number on it. That's all oh, right. Oh, you know, all, all you have to do to get there, just go to YouTube. Yeah, I was just going to suggest. And write Lee Cronbach Piano. And that's C-R-O-N-B-A-C-H. Right. C-R-O-N-B-A-C-H. And be sure to put either piano or music after that. Because the other Lee Cronbach is a psychiatrist. He's much more famous than me. He died, but he'll well, still get Cronbach's alpha if you don't put music. But if you put music, then you'll get my site. Now, it's very likely when you get the site, it'll look like a blank page. So you have to check on the thing that says videos. Mm -hmm. Check on that, then you'll see all 53 videos. And each video is sort of like a blog because of you know, so below it says show more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. After the show more, I've written the story of how that piece came to be written. Mm. Put it on my site. YouTube, L-E-E -E space C-R-O-N-B-A-C-H, music, piano. Get it. There you go. Uh, I will have that up on the screen here for those watching on the video on YouTube as well on our channel. Richard Dugan, tell me your story, uh, and uh, and have that available to them as well. Well, it, it uh, the one thing that really uh, is is uh, quite amazing to me is the with your family and just talking with the two of you, and of course hearing about your your middle brother Michael. Uh, very international family. 
not only in your travels, but with the people that you have brought that have come into your lives, respectively, uh, is is really incredible. Uh, you know, uh, most of the people, <laughs> uh, other than through this program, most of the people I know are in the States or in California or in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, you might say sort of a sheltered life, but the two of you, uh, you know, you've traveled and you've met some incredible people. You both have worked, especially you, Lee, have worked with some incredible people who also have have been influenced by so many others. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that influence. Who who are the uh, not so much mentors, but if you if you've got one, you can mention. But those people, those musicians, and maybe non musicians who have really, and this is aside from your sister, who have really inspired and supported and encouraged you uh, in moving forward in your music throughout your career. Okay. But before we do that, one quick thing. I noticed watching my sister on the thing, she looks younger than me. Uh, younger than me. And, and you know uh, what? That's perfectly appropriate. <laughs> what about hair tint? Because Thank God for Revlon hair tint. There you go. <laughs> for most of her life, and a lot of makeup. <clears throat> hey, Maria, I'm talking. Thank you. She's most of her life, she's been doing Zen. She's been eating organic food and stuff like this. She's been exercising, uh, and I haven't been doing any of these things. And as a result, my 76 looks older than her 82. <laughs> yeah, well, when uh, I first interviewed her, I'm going, you're not 82. I lost track of what you were asking me. I just wanted to know who has inspired you. Oh, uh, Charles Mingus and Duke Ellington the most. And I was lucky enough to meet both of them. Oh, wow. And the Duke Ellington story is worthy telling because Duke Ellington was well known for not liking rhythm, well, not liking rock and roll, not liking country western, not liking rednecks, period, never playing <laughs> south of the, you know, in the southern states if he could avoid it, right? That Don't go south of the Mason-Dixon line. And, yeah, and uh, he didn't bother to be very polite with multimillionaire running record companies because he was his supporters included the Al Capone mob and the British royal family. Oh. I really have that much behind you. You don't need to kiss the ass of some Columbia Records guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> so anyway, I was with a band, a guy named Frosty Furman and another guy named Brent Moyer who later became quite a well-known country western rock musician. And if you look up Brent Moyer on YouTube, Check out what he does to uh, Riders in the Sky, Ghost Riders in the Sky, the mm. most wonderful guitar version you've ever heard. Anyway, we were in this band. We were these broke redneck hippies, but since I was gay, I could get us jobs at the gay bars. The other guys got us jobs at the biker bars or the longshoreman bars or the plain, low-down, low-class, blue-collar Irish, don't, you know, <laughs> don't mess with those type of bars. But I got the job in the, in the gay bar. And this one gay bar, um, we noticed everybody there was very uptight about the music. They said, okay, so the music is three minutes and 40 seconds. We want your version to be the same length. And you know, we were from the West Coast where when your music, you just start it the same. And then you, like the Grateful Dead, you go for half an hour going all sorts of odd places. And, and so we couldn't do it. But this time, they'd been to a friend's party and they all were drunk on champagne totally flying on champagne so we could do whatever we wanted and we were very healthy then because we had been exercising and 
trying to live like Maria for a week. And uh, <laughs> so we were playing better and better, and the better we played, the more they liked it, the longer we went. And finally, our climax was that, well, you remember this song, Gloria, G-L-O-R-I-A, Gloria. Van Morrison did that. Anyway, we were playing that, and we're each soloing. We each did a better solo than we'd ever done. And the final, Brent Moyer was just totally exhibiting all that great country western shit. In that moment, a friend of mine who was gay from the music school uh, came in with a member of the Duke Ellington band who was gay. And the guy saw it and said, you guys are great. And so he said, you're going to be Duke's guest tomorrow night at the jazz club. So he went there and we were petrified. Now, Duke had a reputation. He could look at you and tell everything about you. In a way of shaking your hand, he would hold... If this was your hand, he would hold it like this. And he'd say, nice to meet you, if he liked you, you know. So he did that to us. And he put a really piercing eye, you know. Yeah. Just, and that, that was it. And then they said, okay, tell you what, you guys. My, uh, my man says you're very good, so you're the band's guest tonight. No charge. You don't pay nothing for anything. And you're going to sit here at the band table and whatever happens at the band table, you're going to get some of it. You want to talk to anybody? I said, yeah, I want to talk to Wild Bill Davis, the father of jazz organ, who happened to be playing with him that night. And uh, you can hear the sound of that band on New Orleans Suite, the first track. Hmm. So um, whether you're playing blues, you can hear Duke and Wild Bill doing duet. So anyway, oh, we're having a great time. And I, Duke says, well, what do you want? And I said, I'd love to see how Wild Bill is setting his organ stops. And he said, okay, look, if you want to put a chair, you sit right behind Wild Bill. You might not have liked that so much, Wild Bill. I mean, I, would, I was there for the hour watching everything. Then I came down to the band table, and suddenly in come this procession of, like, nine rich virgins. They're obviously very upper-class Boston matrons, each wearing a beautiful white satin silk gown that goes all the way down with just enough transparency to make it look sexy and very expensive. And each of them is holding this giant silver tray. And on the tray is, you know, that ball-shaped cover they have in the movies when they're bringing in something fancy. Okay, there's like ten, nine, ten of them walking in like that, procession. And they walk down, and they put all these trays on the band table as a gift to the Duke. He takes a little bite, and then he passes it on down. And so we have been broke. We've been living on hamburger helper and brown rice. And so suddenly we're getting filet mignon steak, the cheese tray, asparagus with hollandaise, lobster. I ate that back then. Um, every every delicacy you can think of. And then finally, um, Duke Ellington uh, stands up and says, well, now I want to play a piano solo dedicated to my fathers who are much greater men than me you got to realize Duke Ellington was a hard fighting for black nationalism and for all that, you know, keeping the race alive and going. And so that's what's probably that about. And then he played this five-minute piano solo, which I've never heard anything like it. Nothing he put on record was close. It combined all elements, interesting elements of classical, baroque, romantic, swing, Dixieland, everything, mm. blues, gospel, all in five and a half minutes and indescribable, but just absolutely wonderful. And so then when we went home, you know, we had the feeling, wow, we've been blessed by the Duke. And so we have been working really lousy jobs before then. Within a week, 
we got an agent. We're working very well-paying jobs. And uh, and we all remember that incident for the rest of our life. It just shows how nice Duke could be because he welcomed us as if we were his long-lost nephews. We were poor white rednecks who could never do a thing for him. He was old. <laughs> we were young. He, we would never... There wasn't ever a chance we'd ever be in a position to do him any favors. And uh, when I was in L.A., I worked back up pianist for a lot of third-rate pop singers who were, had a hit for two years, and they treated you like they were Queen Elizabeth and you were scum, you know. But yeah. here's the Duke, you know, the great Duke, and goes to these rednecks, poor rednecks, and he, you know, what a wonderful guy he was. Wow. What a wonderful I'm so, happy to tell that story about him wherever I can to show how wonderful, more wonderful than anybody ever realized how wonderful this guy was. Yeah, Maria, I want to ask you the same question in your writing especially. Who who has inspired you? Uh, and again, uh, certainly I know your brother, uh, Lee, has. But other, uh, outside the family, if you will, who, who's really made the biggest impact on you in terms of continuing to pursue and create uh, the stories as well as put together even uh, uh, factual, uh, biographical types of works? Well, a very early influence when I was in my late teens was Anais Nan, who at that point nobody had ever heard of. And I had discovered her out-of-print volume of short stories in the Rare Books Library at Columbia. I wrote to her and she was very encouraging. I sent her some poems. She continued to be encouraging. And she wrote always on pale blue stationery, airmail stationery, no return address. Everything she wrote on planes, airplanes. And at this point she was in a, a married to two different men essentially. But I didn't know about that, nor did I really care. She was just incredibly encouraging. And she was, for me, the first writer I'd written, I'd read, who wrote in an authentically female voice. I was urged to read people like Catherine Ann Porter, other contemporary, rather famous women writers. And I thought they're reading like they're writing like they're pretending to be men and they're not being real. They're not being honest. So she was the first who actually wrote in what I thought was honest, in a way that resonated with my own femininity, my own impulses. Mm. Of course, later on, there's been an avalanche of people following an ISN, but I have to say I was among the first who really resonated. Mm. And along the way, then, I've had other writers who've been very encouraging. So many women writers have inspired me. I talked about Anais Nin, George Sand, who inspired me to translate her novel, Lelia. Just so I many told, writers. I told them all about the success of Lelia, you know, how still in print, put out by colleges, praised by B.S. Pritchett. Oh, yeah. It's the only book I'm still making any money from, and it's still in print after <laughs> all these years. the only English translation. Did she mention Lelia to you? Mm, that does not ring a bell. Okay, check this out. She wrote a translation of George Sand's most famous novel, Lelia. And because of uh, George Sand's, you know, she's a woman who dressed like a man and stuff. She was a big influence on as the feminist rose. And so that book has been chosen by colleges and still in print today. Still, it's her best-selling book, the translation of Lelia. And... Um, it was praised by 
and the New York Review of Books by this guy named V.S. Pritchett, who has been called the greatest critic of our times by wow. uh, people like Gore Vidal and uh, Anthony, um, whatever his last name. <laughs> but anyway, he wrote this wonderful couple of lines about how great the translation was and how true to George Sand and how nice and flowing and everything. And uh, so my sister got praised by people, praised by like George Gore Vidal of all people, said this is the greatest essayist book reviewer of our century. And he thought Maria's George Sand was really great. And that's probably why it's still in print and still sold in using college courses um, 60 years later. Mm. I want to thank the two of you so much for being a part of this very special program here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I really do appreciate the fact that we started, the three of us started out uh, with this recording. This is a recording, folks, on a Wednesday. The only one of us who has moved forward in time to the next day is Lee. He's now on Thursday. And uh, it looks like Thursday's a pretty good day thus far, so I'm real excited about getting to Thursday as well. I have three final questions for the two of you. Uh, but before I ask those questions, and I'm going to bounce it back and forth between the two of you, so one of you is going to have an opportunity to think about your answer while the other is answering. Before I do that, let me remind our listeners, you are listening to and watching you, uh, the YouTube video of Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com, as well as this special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We have podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, and others that you folks are reposting us to. As I mentioned before, YouTube. We also encourage you to participate in the decade of perfect vision going within. Trust your intuition and find that still, quiet, peaceful place to just relax and rejuvenate and uh, you just just take it easy in that regard and um, and then come back refreshed into this world to go out and just do the things that you are here to do. And if you enjoy what we are bringing you, if this resonates with you and you'd like to support us financially, we have a PayPal account for your security as well as ours for your support of this broadcast. We'll take energetic support as well. And now to my final three questions for the two of you. And Maria, I know I've asked you these questions before, but sometimes the answers change over, over time. But I'm going to start with Lee first, with the first question. And that is, who is Lee Kronbach? Lee Kronbach is a uh, religiously inspired uh, rock and R&B musician who's taught a lot of people, helped a couple of churches, and helped a lot of individual people have really wonderful lives and students send me back messages on Facebook. You know, um, one more story. I had this one student, a really bright kid, very small. He was from a family that was sort of Irish Catholic, but they're partly black. There was like, he was like one-eighth black or one-sixteenth black. And so he started when he was a late teenager hanging out with like really rough black kids from Seattle, dropped out of high school, got addicted to uh, cocaine, and he was thinking of killing himself. He moved away from home when he, he listened to a Mingus record, a Charles Mingus record I'd given him. 
and uh, that decided him he should go back to life. And and so he, I got this phone call from him at midnight saying, Lee, I've moved back to my home. Your Mingus record saved my life. And then after that, he he got married to a beautiful young woman. They have three kids. He started his own store, first a uh, marijuana bakery shop, and now he's running like a whole one of those department stores. He's the floor manager of the whole thing. And his parents loved me and Rodell ever since for that. And so we got to be their special. So that was that was the most wonderful thing that I've done. But I hear a lot of students. Okay, okay, okay. Let me talk. <laughs> okay. Okay. Enough already. You and I are direct opposites, Lee. Lee, it's like you're on acid or something. You can go on and on and on forever. And I tend to be so taciturn and relatively taciturn. Well, let me, put the, let me put the question to you, Maria. Who okay. is Maria Espinosa? Yeah, and who am I? Uh, here I am in a body and mind, spirit. I'm a being, a human being. Uh, as I grow older, I begin seeing the, my life coming to an end. I feel like I'm on the end loop. Uh, I've got things I need to write. I've somehow been channeling. I'm not religious in the way Lee is. I think I'm much more mystical in my relief. Uh, I think when I was very young, I had a sensation of having lived previous lives. When I was about seven, I thought I had been in an East Indian in a previous life, but I had a very bad temper when I sinned, and now I'm here in this rather awful life that sucks, that isn't too great. <laughs> Kind of a strange image for somebody seven years old. And I don't know if I'd ever, where I'd ever heard that her incarnation. But I feel blessed. I feel blessed for having been given life by my parents, by the universe. Really blessed to have this life. And I think I've learned a lot. At the age of 82, I wish I, of course, was had the kind of serenity and the sense when I was much younger than I've had now. And I think, again, of all the many lives each of us could have lived. Mm -hmm. And I feel lucky just to be alive and lucky for my daughter, very lucky, love her very much. And my brother, Lee, who I also love very much. My family, all the people who've been my teachers in some way, whether they've harmed me or hurt me on the surface, I've learned from each person. My second question, my second question goes to Maria first. This gives you an opportunity, Lee, to think. Maria, what is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? Really to, I think, expand people's awareness, expand their compassion and their understanding of themselves, of other people, of the world through the characters who I write about. And Lee, to you, what is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? Well, most of my work is pretty much over because this Parkinson's disease, uh, I can't move around very much. Um, I look back on the work I've done and I'm happiest about all those ex-students who keep sending me the Facebooks about how they're now happy and married and successful and so on and uh, keeping my YouTube station alive so more and more people 
I got 7,800 people who have listened to it so far. Wonderful. I, I, I want enough to get to a million, you know. Everybody listen to that. That's that's it. That's that's a good summary of my life musically right there. Congratulations. So, I, yeah. Two major bands. And Maria. I, I my sister to help me write a blog. Oh, there you go. Another collaboration of the two. And Maria, uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to give you the last word. So I'm going to ask Lee this last question first. And that is, Lee, what is your life's purpose? My life purpose to play spiritual music and to through teaching give a lot of people better lives than they would have had otherwise. And Maria, you get the last word on these questions. What is your life's purpose? Even though it sounds different, in a way, I think we're both doing the same kind of approach, really to increase my own compassion, increase my own awareness of myself, of other people, of the world, and have Compassion, I say. One word would sum it up. Compassion. Again, I thank the two of you for uh, uh, joining us here on the program, joining us uh, through I don't know how many different time zones, but it's been great to have the two of you with us, uh, one in the morning and one in the evening. Uh, actually, you're in the morning now, uh, Lee, and uh, thank you so much for staying up uh, with us and, and sharing your story as well, along with your sister, uh, Maria. Maria Espinosa and Lee Kronbach are, are, have been my guests here on Tell Me Your Story, and a fascinating program. I hope that you've enjoyed it, and I hope that you will join us again for our next broadcast podcast videocast and until then love to lol <laughs>